Recently in our house, uh, the, uh, the Mandalorian has entered into our vocabulary and to our, our fun. Um, and if you aren't familiar with The Mandalorian, it's a show that was on Disney. Um, and starring that dude on the left with the, the nightlight helmet on and the little guy on the right. We called him Baby Yoda, but his name is Grogu. Uh, it's a pretty cute show. But in, in the way, the Mandalorians, it's about the Mandalorian and Mandalorians, and they're a group of people they are like ancient warriors, and they have a creed. Um, that's really cool. It's basically, they, <clears throat> they're kind of different from the, everybody else. You know, if you've ever seen Star Wars before, Star Wars is kind of in a different galaxy, it's in a different world than our own. But even within the Star Wars galaxy and the craziness that it is, the Mandalorians are a step away from that even. They're, they're different. And, and um, as they do different things, as they protect and kind of fight against the evil of the world, they have a thing where as the Mandalorians gather together, they call They'll say something and they'll say, this is the way at the end. That's their catchphrase. And um, the, the Mandalorians kind of remind me of us um, as Christians. You know, uh, first of all, Jesus had the Mandalorians beat uh, by several thousand years when he declared that he himself was the way, the truth, and the life. I heard that shared during prayer this morning. Um, and, you know, the, the cool thing is that... Um, after Jesus left the earth and before they were known as Christians, um, people were just known as followers of the way. Jesus declared himself the way, and, and we as followers of him are just followers of the way. So that's kind of the beginning. And, and as we talk about following Jesus, I had to think about the disciples. Um, the disciples came from, they were, you know, they were the first followers of Jesus, the first followers of the way. And they came from so many different uh, backgrounds and uh, perspectives. I had to think about this. You know, you had the fishermen, of course, right? You had uh, the IRS agent or the tax collector. You had the, you had the sword-toting rebel. I don't know if the rebel flag existed back then, but maybe they were probably had some version of that rebel flag uh, along with their swords. Um, you know, they had others, and they came from different places and perspectives, but they all came together to go after the one way. That was Jesus, right? And, you know, um, it's not funny, but you have to laugh sometimes about the diversity of opinion you see on Facebook, right? On Instagram, on other social media. There is, without a doubt, or less diversity now that's being censored, but that's another story. Okay, um, but no, there, but there's a lot of diversity of opinion. You can walk down the street and see diversity. You know, you walk past, you drive past, uh, you know, on the way to church, you see flags out there that have quite bold displays of diversity. Um, you know, and it's not, it's not hidden anymore about our diverse opinions, right? It's very, very um, flamboyant. Um, and we have drastically different opinions, but the beauty of being a Christian, the beauty of being followers of the way is that we're all going the same direction. You know, we have come from different places, even today, you know, but we're all going to, uh, the, the same way. We're following Jesus today, and that unites us. And that is uh, the beauty of this. Um, and there we go. You know, so Jesus said, we all, we're, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. So we align ourselves through Jesus. And we may come from different places, but we're followers of Jesus. We're united together with him. That's a reassuring for me. So today I wanted to highlight three more W's, three words or ideas that we can consider as checkpoints along the way. And I'm, I'm sure there's more. These aren't the all-inclusive, but there's a, just a couple that kind of God placed in my heart. And the three are, uh, wonder, worship, and wisdom. And it wasn't intentional, but they, they make a phrase WWW because I'm a child of the internet, so that's part of the internet too. But um, 
I'm talking about them kind of in an order, but you'll see how interwoven they are. There's, there's, a, there's kind of a, they all flow together. But uh, one of the first words I wanted to talk about was uh, the word wander. Um, this is the three, by the way. You can write these down if you want to. Wonder, worship, and wisdom, just to keep that in the back of your mind. But the first word was, was wonder. Um, and what is wonder? Um, I wanted to kind of clarify what it's not. You know, there's, there's this, the similarly uh, pronounced word, but it's differently spelled word, uh, wander, with an A, like, which means to travel without purpose, which I just talked about uh, us as followers of the way. We're not a purposeless people, and we follow after Jesus, so we're not wanderers with an A. Um, so we walk or even we run this race of life with a, with a goal and a finish line in mind. And I'm also not talking about wonder as in a word we use when we're expressing doubt, like I wonder if the Giants will ever win a Super Bowl ever again. Thanks, James. Um, um, <laughs> but the, the wonder I'm talking about is, is like the, the thing that you get when you first discover, the feeling you get when you first discover something so expansive and so large and awe-inspiring that it stops us in our tracks. Um, as, a, as a family, we're reading this devotional called Indescribable, and it talks about the wonders of creation. And man, I, I can't help but get blown away and, and stop and, and think about how amazing God is when we look at the wonders of his galaxy, the wonders of our human body. So that's a, that's a beautiful thing. But um, the de- definition of wonder, uh, another one, a way of describing it, it's a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. So that's the dictionary definition of it. But um, I was talking with my friend Michael Brewer a few days ago, and uh, we, uh, we get together to work out, but it usually ends up being we, we try to solve the world's problems in that hour of sweat. Um, but, um, you know, it's, wonder is kind of an interesting phrase because, um, you know, first of all, it's an emotion that's easy to feel for things that are new to us, right? Um, I think it's a reason why kids are really good at wondering, uh, because everything's new to them, right? You go, you take your, your child, and I have, I have all boys, but I took, took my kids when they were like, you know, two or three, took them to a train station, and whoa, that was, they're full of wonder. You look, point out a, a star in the sky, whoa. You know, you point out a, a horse or a deer or, or anything else, and it's all new, and it's all wonderful. Um, you know, the world is a beautifully new thing to kids, um, but it's more of a challenge to, th- to experience wonder when we think of something or someone that's familiar to us. Um, I can think of two examples. Like one is when you're traveling in a car on the way to a destination. The first time you travel there, it's kind of cool because it's a new way of going, a new way of doing things. And you're like, I've never seen this road before. It's, it's cool. But, you know, the commute to Harrisburg now, 322 to 81, that's kind of boring after a while because you know the way and it's, not, it's familiar to you. Um, and it's not quite as wonderful. Um, maybe the, even the other example, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, is that uh, wonder in a new relationship is so much easier, or feels so much easier than to wonder in a long-term relationship. Um, we think there's nothing new about a long-term relationship. Um, maybe you felt that way about God, your relationship with God. You think that you've known God so long that nothing feels new, and you you have a routine with God. You know, we call routine religion, but it's a, it's a way of saying, you know, I've made a system of familiarity with God that he's, he's uh, predictable, um, he, he, he operates this way, and, you know, there's, um, you know, maybe you feel you know all about him, as crazy as that is to say out loud, or maybe you just can't put a finger on why you don't feel wonder about God anymore. Um, 
And just to clarify, I was looking in the Bible for a few verses, and you know, all the time to jump into all these today. But Isaiah 42.9, Isaiah 43.19, Revelation 21.5, even 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 5.17, they all talk about God being in the business of doing new things. Now the first three, Isaiah 42.9, Isaiah 43.19, Revelation 21.5, they all talk about the new things God is doing right in the earth, in the world. Um, we talked about this in prayer. I love how prayer aligns what's happening with God on God's heart. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 makes it personal too. You know, it says that not only is God doing things in, in, uh, in the world, but 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if we are in Christ, we are, anybody know the verse? We are new creation or new creatures. The old has passed away and all things are becoming new. You know, I'm, a, I'm somewhat of an English geek, but even the word becoming, you know, it's a, it's a verb of continuant, continual um, you know, action. It's not just an action that happened at one time, but it's happening even right now. So it's a present active verb, which is really powerful and exciting. So I'd encourage you to take some time to meditate on those scriptures if you feel like God isn't up to something new. But here's, here's a slide and something to ponder. If, if we're not experiencing wonder in our relationship with God, it's not God's problem. Have you ever thought about that? If, if we're not experiencing wonder about God, it's not God's problem. And let's, let's talk a little bit about getting her wonder back. Now, if you talk to Hannah, um, one of the first things she'll tell you about me is that she knows exactly when I start wondering about something uh, because I'll just kind of pause and, and uh, you know, I'll look up in the in the sky. Now, it's kind of scary if I'm driving and this happens, but, you know, I'll kind of like just pause and, and look off in the distance and she'd be like, hello. You know, I didn't hear the last like, three paragraphs she, she said out loud. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of disconnect for a little bit. And what is the, the action word that I use? I stop. Um, and I think that's a first clue about how we learn to wonder about God is that we, in order to wonder about God, we first have to stop. Um, now, the concept of stopping and resting in, is all, in, all through Scripture. Um, one of the first places, you might know this one, is Psalms 46.10. It says, uh, God, he says, be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, in the context of that, God's not just addressing individuals. He's addressing whole nations. So that speaks to the ultimate power of God. But still, the, the command is in there. Um, to know God, we have to stop and be still. Um, and that's kind of tough to do sometimes. Um, next verse is, is Psalms 23, verse 2. Beautiful, you know, common, familiar scripture of Psalm 23. But he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. So we need to stop. But sometimes I think we're not so, we're not so good at stopping that God has to kind of do it for us. You know, and I, I think that verse speaks to a loving God, but a God who's willing to force us? Is that an okay word to use about God? But it is. Oh, force us to stop and force us to rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So if we're not willing to do it on our own, God kind of comes in there at times and he helps us to stop and helps us to be still. Um, so as we begin to wonder about God, we first have to stop and, and what we have been doing. So Back when I was in college and sleep wasn't as high of a priority as it is now. Anybody else like that? Like you, you could like not sleep, you know, maybe, I don't know. But I like sleep. Um, but anyway, back, back then when it didn't matter as much, I was, I invited a few friends over. I think Hannah actually came too, um, to our, my backyard. And we laid out sleeping bags and pillows and we 
um, slept under the stars, camped out, and we watched shooting stars. It was a meteor shower at that time. Um, and as I was laying on my back in my yard looking at the shooting stars, I just, um, there was no way that I could have wondered at that amazing display of God's handiwork without first stopping. Like I couldn't you know, drive a car and look at those things. I couldn't you know, do other things on my phone. I had to, had to stop and just stare and wander. So again, take time to stop if you're, if you're looking to wander again about God. Rest, unplug, quiet your heart. Um, this phrase in my study to, uh, this week really helped me. It says, spend time in unhurried delight with Jesus. You know, that picture of that, of being um, on my back looking at the, the splendor of God through the galaxies and the meteors that were, that were showering. You know, how many times do we hurry uh, in, our, in our, you know, even in, in my devotions, I'm like, you know, I'm looking at my clock, like I gotta, I gotta, you know, move on with my day now. But, you know, spend time in unhurried delight with Jesus. Um, and, you know, at our, at our uh, relationship class on Wednesdays, uh, we, we talk a lot about the, the hurdles that involve with relationships and being with, with God as a relationship. And it's tough, right? It's tough to, even as a, as a couple, even as, as friends, it's tough to gather together. Um, and it's tough to spend time with one another when you have the busyness of the world. But take time to spend that unhurried time with Jesus. Take time to stop. Take time to rest. So in order to wander again, take time to stop. So uh, the second aspect of wonder is to be curious. I like breaking these down, but uh, here's, to be curious means to, so after we stopped, of course, to be curious means to be willing to learn and grow on your understanding about something. Um, curiosity awakens our desire to experience new things and new ways. So are you curious about what God is and what he's doing? Um, again, I think about like the, um, you know, kids are naturally curious. That's just a, but Think about that for a second as we pick up the story. And it's Mark 6, uh, 1 through 5. Um, you could open your Bibles. You could read it on the screen with me. But I want to take you to this passage real quick about uh, um, curiosity. So Jesus came out from there and came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these is performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and is that a typo? Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Can you imagine being offended at Jesus? Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Now, um, a couple things. These people had grown up with Jesus. They had a pretty good idea. They thought they knew what he was going to do or what he was about. Um, you know, I could just say, observing this passage, observing that story, there's no curiosity in those folks that were watching him in his hometown. Um, there was no openness to seeing what Jesus was going to do. Um, maybe even there's, you could say there's as much as there's no unwillingness to be surprised by the transformation of Jesus into what he was called to do. You know, transformation from carpenter's son, transformation from the guy you saw at school, uh, you know, day to day into what Jesus was, who, who he really was, the son of God. And, you know, that last verse says he, or verse five says he could do no miracle there except he laid his, laid his hands on a few people and healed them, a few sick people, um, I can tell you this, verse 6 speaks to me again. We're talking about wonder. 
I don't want Jesus to wonder about my unbelief. I don't want Jesus to wonder about uh, what I'm about. I don't want to, um, I don't want to limit what, what Jesus wants to do. So in order to see Jesus move, we've got to be willing to anticipate and get excited for the new things he does. So I'm, you know, I'm reminded, like I said, about children being naturally curious, that, that Jesus told um, you know, people gathered to be like little children. Now we talk about that usually in the context of faith, like we have faith like a little child, but there, there are many aspects. So one of those aspects of being childlike is just to be, be curious. Um, I think it's, again, it's so beautiful, just like kids are good at wondering about the world because it's so new to them. They're also really good at asking questions, right? We, the phrase maybe from age three to five or even older is why, why, why is the sky blue? You know, those are, you know, the why, why do our pets have to die? Those are tougher ones to answer, but our, our kids are asking why. They're naturally curious and we should be like them. If we want to journey with Jesus on the way, we need to wonder and need to be curious to be willing to see both the vastness of Jesus, like that starry sky I talked about earlier, and um, to be willing to not to have pride in our own perspectives. Um, and to say it another way, we can't be of a mentality in our hearts or in our minds to limit what Jesus can do. Um, so none of us here that I know of, at least, you know, grew up with Jesus, you know, like a next door neighbor. We didn't know him as the carpenter or the boy next door. Maybe we still carry unspoken expectations in our heart about how or when Jesus will move. I'm more on that a little bit later, but an attitude of wonder causes us to stop what we're doing, right? So we can see and have a heart of curiosity so that we're eager to learn and know all what Jesus is up to. So when we begin to grasp how wonderful or full of wonder Jesus is, we start seeking him out. This is the next one, seek. This theme is woven throughout scripture. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, actually, you know that phrase, you know, I know the plans that I have for you, that phrase. But right after that, two verses later on, Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, that I'll put it up here for you. Oops. Too many button presses. You will seek me and find me when you seek, search for me with all of your hearts. And the next verse in Jeremiah 13, I don't have that, or 14, I don't have that up, but it says, that God will let himself be found, which is a beautiful thing, that God doesn't play games with us. He wants to be found. He wants to be sought after, and he'll be found when we seek after him. So there's an aspect of seeking that we should be good at. So just to recap again, to wonder about God is to first stop what we're doing, then begin to be curious, and finally that last phrase in the, in the umbrella of wonder is to seek him out. Now, Matthew 2 has this beautiful picture of these dudes that we most commonly uh, call wise men, um, you know the story of, of the wise men, you know, the part of the nativity scene, but the, the, the story of them is that they, um, you know, they travel from afar. Now, I was looking this up a little bit, and, and I didn't find a conclusive answer about how far they had to travel. You know, they obviously came from the east, that's recorded in the scripture, but we don't actually know how far away they came. But one of the, one of the places I looked up said that they came about uh, <clears throat> 2,700 kilometers. That's uh, kilometers in here for Don, our, our Canadian here in the audience, so he can know. But for in, in freedom units, that's uh, 1,700 miles um, riding on camels. Now, <clears throat> I'm, um, yeah, freedom units. I'm pretty confident the roads were a whole lot worse even than Pennsylvania roads at springtime, right? I'm pretty sure. Um, these wise men traveled far to seek Jesus. And, um, you know, here's a question for you as we wonder today about God. How far will you go to seek Jesus? Um, and 
their journey, uh, the wise men's journey rather, uh, was finished uh, when they were able to bring their gifts and lay them at Jesus' feet. Now, we talk about the what of the wise men a lot in the context of gifts. Like they brought, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's a beautiful picture of that. It's another, another story. But we don't also, also think about the other what that they did. You know, after they sought after Jesus, after they found Jesus and journeyed that far, made a sacrificial journey like that, you know, what was their goal? Their goal was ultimately to worship Jesus. And that leads me to the, to the next word of the way, which is the W word, is, is the word worship. You know, the, the wise men sought after Jesus and they didn't just seek after him because they wanted to, to be like the, you know, the, um, the first century Amazon.com delivery guys. No, they were seeking after him to worship um, who he was. Um, and so anyway, when we wonder how, how big God is and how expansive his creation is, um, I first wrote our only appropriate, our, our, an appropriate response would be to worship him, but I, I crossed it out and said our, our only appropriate uh, response is to worship him. I think I have the old version up, but let's take a look at this for a second. You know, when we, we take a moment to experience who God is, um, will we experience him in his creation or experience him in what he does for us? And, and the beauty of the gospel message, message is the only appropriate response is to worship. Um, and ironically, there's even a line in a worship song that says worship is more than a song. Uh, but we often associate worship as only what we do when we gather together here on Sunday mornings and we sing together. Now, I'm not saying that what we do on Sunday mornings isn't amazing and isn't wonderful. It isn't a part of what worship is, but it's not the only thing. It's not the only thing we're supposed to do when we worship Jesus. And if you look in the New Testament, one of the best definitions of worship is found in Romans 12.1. I'll put it up for you. Um, it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Now I want to back up for a second and just look at the phrase, a living sacrifice. What does that even mean? Okay, so let's even back up a little further, back into the Old Testament, talk about sacrifices for a second. So sacrifices in the Old Testament were always Broadly speaking, of course, we're always either acts of worship to God, right? Or they were an act to restore us back to right relationship with God so that we could worship him. Now, there's a lot of nuances, but that's just like a broad, broadly speaking with those two things. Either acts of worship or to restore us back to worship with God. Um, and sometimes um, sacrifices were thanksgiving or celebration, you know, celebrating the harvest, celebrating the first, the first fruits, they called it. Uh, just thanking God for who he was. Sometimes they were uh, for purification, um, you know, after sickness. Uh, sometimes they were for atonement or forgiveness and to deal with the sin that all humans do. And of course, I'm kind of summarizing what sacrifices are for. There's a whole lot in there. Um, in the book of Leviticus, and that's a scary book about to talk about in, uh, um, on a Sunday morning, but there are detailed instructions on when, how, and what to sacrifice. Very detailed Sacrifice often involved the shedding of an animal's blood and was a very raw, um, gritty, and messy way to underscore the yuckiness of sin. And, you know, by the way, when you read Leviticus now, we can read it, read it as a beautiful um, foretaste, a beautiful preparing the way of Jesus. So you can read it with new eyes and new light. And I encourage you to, to jump into it sometime because it's a beautiful, beautiful foreshadowing of what Jesus does for us. Um, but anyway, jumping in more into, you know, sacrifices. Israelites believe that the blood represented life, right? We, we believe that too. There's a, there's a concept where blood is life of the animal, life of a human. Um, and 
life is the opposite of death. By shedding of the animal's blood, there was a right relationship was restored between people and God. So there was a, a shedding of life. And as life was poured out, there was a restoration between people and God. And it foreshadows, you know, Jesus sacrificing his life for us. And after the animal was killed and many of the sacrifices, its remains were burned on an altar. Um, now, these sacrifices were performed in the temple, which is the throne of God within the world, or the place where heaven and earth meet. Now, think about that for a little bit. Um, it was a beautiful section where, where God meets us in that place. He meets heaven and the earth come. The temple at the, in the Old Testament time is where God's throne was, where, where uh, you would go to the temple to, in order to interact with God versus the New Testament model, which is, is God is inside of us. So that's anyway. But to, to back up a little bit, let me just be clear. Um, when an animal was sacrificed, it was a one-way transformation, right? Um, there was uh, from animal to ash, there was no way back. Um, and we need to, to meditate on that for a second because let's, as we fast forward back to the New Testament again, so we have Jesus who fulfills the law, right? He's the gospel message. He's the truth. Um, there's, no, there's no need anymore for animal sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, right? So why then do we have Romans 12, 1 I, uh, telling us to worship as living sacrifices? Uh, when we are a living sacrifice, we are following the example of Jesus' death. But then the, the second part, right? His victorious resurrection too. So there's a concept in the New Testament where in order to live fully, because Jesus came to give us life and that abundantly, but we had to first surrender fully in order to live fully. And Jesus give, gave us a perfect example for us when he was willing to surrender his whole life to give us new life. Um, so remember, uh, you know, I talked about Leviticus just a minute, a minute ago and there were laws regarding how and what to sacrifice you know, the book of Leviticus and even Deuteronomy gets a bad rap sometimes because there's a lot of laws. Laws get boring to read. Uh, laws are tough to read. It's heavy, heavy reading. But did he catch that the worship was laid out step by step in, as a law? It was, so let me make this clear. You didn't, you didn't have to want to sacrifice. Um, you had no choice. You had to worship via sacrifice. That was worship. In other words, was a requirement. You had to do these things in order to be, have a rela- right relationship with God. There was no choice. Um, so when Jesus died on the cross, he became a sacrifice for us, fulfilling the law once and for all, like I said. And he didn't sacrifice because he had to. He did it out of love. Now, this next part is important. Let me, let me back up a second. And because it represents a radical shift in Old Testament way versus New Testament way, and that is that his last words to his disciples before his death, among his last words, Jesus tells them in John 10, verse 18, that no one could take his life, no one, but that he laid it down of his own accord. He laid it down of his own free will and his choice. He had the authority to lay it down, to die, and the authority to rise again. Um, if, so there, there's this, this, this beautiful picture that Jesus didn't sacrifice because he had to, but he did it out of love. Take that for a second. Hebrews 12, 2 underscores that and says, for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross. You know, I can't, I can't even imagine joyfully anticipating the cross as a mechanism of cruel punishment, a cruel execution, um, horribly painful. And yet Jesus uh, had joy set before him because he knew not the, he wasn't worried so much about the act of execution. He was worried about the results and he, he saw through to the end. And what a beautiful picture of, having vision to see through to the end of what God does for us. So 
this act of, of worship, a huge sacrifice, freed us from the penalty of the law and death, but also freed us for love. So um, we talk a lot about freedoms, right, in America. You know, we talk about what we're free from, you know, free from slavery, free from other things, but there's also a concept of free for things, right? We're free, freed in, in, in Jesus, we're freed from the law, but we're also freed for love, we're freed to love, to be able to love. So no one forces us to worship Jesus. There's no law in Leviticus anymore that uh, applies to us in the sense that we are required to offer a sacrifice, but we get to, we get to worship Jesus. And that is a radical shift that changes everything about what we do. Um, We don't have to worship, we don't have to surrender, we don't have to give our lives, but we get to. We do, it, we do it because we love. And this is where real worship happens. So um, just like the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, it's meant to be a one-way uh, process. And let me back up for a second and show you this next slide. So our, you know, our, our spiritual act of worship is meant to be a daily, hourly, even moment-by-moment moment moment surrender of loving worship to God. Um, I heard somebody say that um, the problem with living sacrifices is that they like to get off the altar. And um, I think that's, that's true. Like, you know, the, the one-way process of an animal on the altar means that after they're died, you know, their body is burned up and they're no more. There's no getting that animal back again anymore. And there's, there's a, a, a New Testament phrase that it's a, it's a fancy word called sanctification, but really it's just a way of saying we're becoming more and more like God. And, you know, it's supposed to be a one-way process, like the animal going from animal to ash. You know, it's supposed to be a transformation from the old way to the new way, and it's never supposed to stop. And so sometimes we treat it like, a, like it's a, a choice that we get to do, but it is, it is a choice, but it's a daily choice of surrendering to Jesus so that we can be changed. So that we can, and that is what it means to uh, give our lives as living sacrifices. It's a continual way. So worship is much more than a song. It's meant to be our lives. It should be something that we sacrifice. It should be sacrificial worship. We give our all, we surrender our all so we can live fully in what Jesus is. So if I could sum up that section of worship is today, choose to worship, choose to surrender your life because of your love for Jesus. Don't do it because you have to, do it because you want to, do it because you love Jesus today. So um, just to sum up the first two sections, we, we learn to wonder, you know, to, to, be, to stop, to be curious and to seek and to worship, to surrender our lives out of love. And the, the last word I wanted to talk about is the word wisdom. Um, so I, f- I felt to, w- to share about wisdom last because on our way of journeying with Jesus, we often resort to wisdom first, um, right? We naturally go after wisdom as a, a way of, um, you know, navigating through life, um, now, the Bible is all about wisdom. Proverbs is probably a book of wisdom. It's a book of wisdom. It's full of uh, great wisdom, but it talks about, Proverbs 9.10 kind of sets a, a framework for, for wisdom when it says this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So you can look at the world and see people that look wise. You can see people that look like they're smart, um, but if they haven't started with the fear of the Lord, if we haven't started with the fear of the Lord, our wisdom, their wisdom is out of order. So I, I want to have an order of wisdom. 
hope you do too, that we, we start by becoming wise by learning to fear who God is, by learning to respect and honor God and what he does for us. Um, maybe, maybe you're in a place uh, where you're like, God, I, I don't know a whole lot. I don't even know what I don't know. Um, and um, a few years ago, I heard Pastor Phil Capuccio, who's a spiritual father in this house, share a word that was really comforting to me. He shared from Luke 2.52, where it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and a favor with God and man. This is speaking of Jesus when he was still a young man. He was still learning. He was still growing. He was under his parents. And, and Pastor Phil brought this to life, and I just echo what he says. He says, Jesus is perfect, and he was God in the flesh, right? Those are truths. And yet he still needed to learn. That blew my mind when I heard that. Like, wait, Jesus was born, and he was perfect. He was fully God, fully man, yet he still needed to learn? How does that even work? And, and, but the, the, the most important thing I, I think we get from that is a posture of learning. That Jesus had a posture to learn. He learned from his, his father and mother. He was taught things. You know, I can even picture him learning the carpentry skills from his dad. You know, learning, um, you know, in ways that blows my mind to think about this. But Jesus needed to learn. Um, I think that we, we talked about wonder earlier. That should be our posture, to, to be curious about things, to seek after things, to learn new things. And it's okay that we don't know things as long as we're willing to learn. Um, in, in James 1, 5, it says, if anyone, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, there we go. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Um, I, I pray this scripture a lot when I'm, uh, struggling with, with knowing something because, God, I need wisdom. And we should, we should be going to God first for, our, for problems. Um, you know, when I was, in, I was in a school ministry a few years ago and we were given a task as a group, small groups, to study scripture. And so we jumped right in after the assignment was given and started. And, and the teacher wisely paused us and he said, did anybody stop to pray and ask God to illuminate the scriptures you're trying to learn about. And we were all guilty of it because we in our eagerness to jump after and learn the scriptures, we hadn't really stopped and prayed. But if we don't do that for scripture sometimes, how much more so don't we do that when we're in life, right? You know, I, I, I catch myself and it's so easy to do. You're, you, you get something, even good things you're excited to do and you jump into it and like, wait a second, I should have prayed like five hours ago, you know, to, before I started jumping into this. And how much more do we need to ask for wisdom when we lack it? Um, and it says that God will give it to us generously with, to all without finding fault, and, and it'll be given to us. So there's a God who's generous with his wisdom when we ask for it. Um, I wanted to talk about the different types of wisdom too. So um, maybe you've heard of these, these things, but broadly speaking, again, there's two categories of wisdom. Um, there's like the head knowledge, we call it, like a, a book, like book reading, um, secondhand knowledge, um, and there's heart knowledge, like experience or firsthand, you know. Um, and I, I thought of some two, uh, two stories that are kind of funny. First of all, I love YouTube. And I love watching things about how, how watching YouTube for how to learn to do stuff. Um, so once I had a car that needed a wind-up window fixed. Now, this is a pretty old car. It was an 86 Jetta for those of you who like, like cars. It, it was, they're awesome cars. It was very reliable, except one day the window just stopped working. And I had pictures, I was like panicking because I'm a panicky guy about like if a police officer pulled me over, I'd have to wind the rear window down and like say, hey, the, the window doesn't work and that would be weird, you know. So I tried to get this window fixed. So I was, I was watching YouTube videos. I'm like, oh man, this guy's doing it in 30 minutes. Looks really simple. I can do this. But if you know anything about YouTube videos, 
you know that, uh, first of all, they, they do this thing called fast forwarding, you know, in the video that makes things faster. Um, it didn't work that way for me. Uh, it took me what should have been 30 minutes, I think, to about uh, six hours. Now, after six hours, the window kind of worked. Um, it kind of kind of wound up and down. I was, it was kind of sketchy, though. And um, I, I had ended up with, like, three extra nuts and bolts somehow from, like, I'm like after we got the window back in, the door, the door back on, you know, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to rip it apart again to figure out what happened. It, it was kind of working. Um, I'm just going to, you know, be, be done with it. I had to apologize to the squirrel next, in the tree next to me for the words I was probably sharing. And, you know, um, you know so there was... There is an aspect of, of head knowledge there with my wisdom, right? My head was full of knowledge from the YouTube video, but I had no real firsthand knowledge of how to fix the window until afterwards. Now, I, no, I don't want to do that again. Um, but, you know, I, I probably have a better understanding now of how to fix that window than I did before I tried doing it. Um, same can be said of relationships, right? You know, we can know a lot about a person, but fall short of actual relationship. There's a, as a guy that I like to listen to on podcasts. His name's Tom Wright or N.T. Wright. As he's known, he's a guy from England. I love listening to his accent. He's got a really soothing English accent. Um, and he's a, as a, um, he's a Bible teacher. Um, and he, he shares a lot about who he is. Like from his podcast, I've learned that he and his wife you know, live, live in, um, near Oxford, one of the universities, and they love to walk in their gardens. And I learned that he likes cricket. And he, he, I learned that he you know, loves tea like most English people do. I learned that he likes to ride bike. I learned all these things about him, right? But I've never met him personally. Um, I'd love to meet him someday. But um, I think there's, that's another aspect of this, this wisdom thing where we can learn about somebody uh, until we experience it face-to-face. Um, and, you know, before I became a parent, right, maybe if you're a, if you're a parent here, you know this, that I had read all the books on parenting, uh, and uh, or some of the books at least. I was full of incredible parental wisdom, but that kind of dropped out of my mind when my each of my boys, you know, the course of the years was placed in my arms as a newborn, right? Because all the head knowledge we have, the, all the things we think we know about parenting, we kind of throw a lot of it out the door once we actually um, experience what it means to be a, a parent. Um, now, our experiences should be powerful teachers. I hope them a better parent now after experiencing parenthood than I was before. But, um, and I'm going to maybe share a, um, share a phrase that might be confusing, uh, jump ahead a little bit, but um, I actually didn't write it down. That's okay. Uh, I'll just share it with you. Experience should weigh more heavily than our experiences. Now let me explain by that. Um, in October of last year, I was in my closet putting away laundry and, you know, there's, there's things that impact us so much we remember details about it. And that was one of these things. I was putting away laundry in my closet. And I got a call that no one should ever have to get. It was my brother on the phone. And he had just left the doctor's office with his wife, Lexa, who was eight months pregnant at the time. Um, and at the appointment, um, as my brother Brad was sharing, he said that the ultrasound technician and then the doctor couldn't find the heartbeat of the little boy. And it broke my heart to hear my brother sob on the phone. You know, I was, I had just been folding laundry. I was just in my closet doing normal life and all of a sudden he calls me and it's just a, it's a bomb of uh, emotion as of hearing him break down and cry um, and share about the loss that he's in the process of just, just starting to experience. 
Um, and even in the midst of my own tears, even in the midst of trying to minister to him, I began to pray for life in that little boy. And I remember, you know, there was a period of time where we didn't know. We didn't know for sure that he, whether he was dead or alive. I, I, uh, in our hearts, I was like, God, please let it be a mistake. Please let the ultrasound machine have had it, you know, malfunction somehow. Or, uh, you know, maybe he was rolled a funny way and they couldn't find a heartbeat. So we prayed fervently, right, over a course of a couple of days. Um, we prayed believing and genuinely believing for faith for a healing. And I was like, God, even if he's already dead, I believe that you have faith to resurrect his body. And unfortunately, a few days later, Lexa delivered a stillborn baby boy. His name was Hudson. And we were crushed. I remembered feeling emotions that ranged from bitter grief to depression and even anger. Um, and all those are, are, are normal and okay. But so we didn't see a miracle. We didn't see a miracle that we had prayed for and hoped for and believed for. And we had faith for. I believe we had faith. And we were left with the temptation with picking up new experiential wisdom from the situation. We were looking, we were, we were tempted with the ability to experience something and add that to our real life firsthand experiences of who God is and what he does. Um, and it was a temptation, right? God, you promised he would, he would be saved. You promised that he would be, you know, resurrected. You, you say that you're a God of miracles. You say that you can do this. You believe, and we believe he was all powerful and we didn't see it. We didn't see it happen in this, this case. Um, but something beautiful happened then. A few days later, we drove down to North Carolina where my brother and sister-in-law live and, and we watched them at the funeral. And of course, it was heartbreaking as they, they re- recounted the, the grief of the situation. Um, you know, I still can't even imagine the heartbreak of Lex having to deliver a baby that was dead. Um, but she, as they recounted the story, um, I, I watched and I, I heard as God was with them every step of the way from their, even in the, in the midst of the pandemic, their, their pastor couldn't always get into the hospital, but their pastor, you know, happened to be there. He was able to be there right with them in that moment, every step of the way. And they had nurses who were Christians who had also experienced the, the trauma of a, a stillborn baby and they, those nurses were able to minister. So I watched what was a horrible experience and I watched God break through into their lives. Um, they experienced God my brother and sister-in-law, they experienced God in a way that transcended their experience. Um, in other words, we need to let our experience with God be greater than our life experiences, right? So earthly, earthly wisdom will fail. It will. Even the, even the best, like, firsthand experience will fail. But heavenly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that God gives us through experience with him, will always prove more comforting and challenging and life-giving than anything else. So, yeah, I will say that I'm, I'm, I haven't yet seen a healing of the resurrection of a baby like that. I haven't yet seen, you know, many miracles like that, but I refuse to give up. I refuse to stop seeking after God. And, you know, the, the Proverbs, um, here's maybe just a phrase to, to go out, that godly experience is greater than earthly experience, right? Even, and this is a, this is a worldly thing it's, that's tough to grasp. Like, even when, when we say there's good, good, good things, there's a, there's a, there's a, it's good to experience life. It's good to have firsthand experiences versus secondhand experiences. I'm saying we need to go above even firsthand experiences and experience God, experience Him face to face. 
And I, I don't rely on my own understanding, but here's Proverbs. Um, says this, Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. Don't lean on your, on your own experiences. And what's the next verse? Um, he, in all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your paths or your ways straight. Um, this world does not need any more wisdom in the ordinary sense of that world. Even good experiential wisdom doesn't need any more of that, right? It needs experienced wisdom, experience in the presence of God, experience in a face-to-face encounter with him. So a question I have for you is, is what or whose experience are you relying on? And we should rely on the experience of God. Um, I was thinking about this in another, another way, you know, on your resume of life, right? On a resume for a job, you list your experiences. You know, I went to this school, I, uh, you know, did work this job, and I had this experience in doing this. But on your resume of life, where or whom do you get your experience from? And Psalms uh, 25, 4 says this, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Make me know your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. The, the word for make me know is a beautiful word in Hebrew. It's the word yada. And it's a word used to describe a face-to-face encounter. It's not by reading a book or by a third uh, or second-hand encounter, but by becoming close. Um, the, the phrase is used beautifully in different parts of the, of the Bible, but it, you know, besides face-to-face, it's, it's used in, in some passages of the Bible to uh, talk about the real kind of relationship that exists only between a lover and his beloved. It's a beautiful word picture of what God says uh, he wants to, to do. He wants to experience us face-to-face, and we desire that too. So, uh, you know, the, there's a face-to-face level to make us know that God wants to know us at a face-to-face. Um, and Psalm 51.6, this last part of it says, in the hidden part or in the secret place, God, you desire to make me know wisdom. So even in the even in the hidden parts of our lives, even in the hidden, in the secret place, God desires to, to make us know, to, to have a face-to-face encounter with him. Um, God desires us to learn his wisdom in the best way possible, not through YouTube, not even through the experiences of our life, but to know him at a face-to-face level, to, to have no more book knowledge of him, not even of the Bible, but to know him, to know God, to know his wisdom. And let that be our cry today. God, we want to know your wisdom we want to know your ways. We want to experience you, God, face to face. Teach us your ways, God. Show us your path, David says in Psalm 21.6. So I you know, wanted to summarize, you know, maybe where we're at today is, is to, to not lose the wonder of who God is, to, to worship sacrificially, you know, just like those wise men, to seek after God and to be willing to journey a long way, to sacrificially worship wholly and completely and as a living sacrifice and, and finally to receive worship, rather to see, receive wisdom by experiencing who God is. So as we in, close today, I wanted to invite you to do a couple things, to, um, to never lose that wonder, to present our, our bodies, to present our whole selves as living sacrifices and finally to experience who God is. So, um, I just want to end with that, to know who God is truly in our hearts, to love him. So Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you are full of wonder. Jesus, and we just even take this time right now to stop. We stop and we experience wonder again. We thank you that you're doing new things. 
that you are a God of doing new things, that you're even doing new things in our lives, that we are new creations if we're in Jesus and we believe that. And Jesus, we seek after you with all of our hearts today. We seek after you, Jesus. We acknowledge you and we desire that we, we know we can find you when we seek after you. That God, you don't play games with us. You don't play hide and seek, but that you want to be found. So Jesus, we seek after you. We worship you as living sacrifices, holy and completely to live holy, to live well is to sacrifice well. And so we live and we worship in that way, Jesus. And finally, we desire the wisdom from on high, the wisdom that comes uh, from knowing you face to face, Jesus. That's our desire. That's our heart's cry today. May we go in that way, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Do you want to close with anything? Okay, cool. Yeah.